0: It's, well, salmon, yes, and and Irish salmon, to be specific. Irish smoked salmon, if you really want to get particular.
1: What will e-commerce look like when the pandemic is over? What does fast shipping mean anymore? And does anyone actually like returns? That's some of what we're going to figure out. This is BoxCast conversation about current events, culture, and e-commerce logistics from Pitney Bowes. Hey, I'd like to introduce uh, Stacy Schaefer from our Solution Consulting team. Uh, Stacey, welcome. Welcome on the podcast.
2: Thank you, VJ. I am very excited to be here and talking with you today.
1: This is going to be exciting. I'm, I've been looking forward to this conversation because this is an area where a lot of retailers are trying to figure things out. And I, I feel like we've got some really interesting data points and some perspectives or anecdotes to share with, with our audience. So let's go through. We, what we did was we ran a survey uh, of consumers in six markets and I'll just tick through them. It's uh, three in Europe, UK, France, Germany, uh, Canada, which makes sense because we're largely talking to U.S. merchants, although we talked to uh, U.K. and European merchants as well. Um, and then we looked at China, South Korea, and Australia. Uh, as, so those are those are the six markets we we looked at. And we ran the surveys back in July. As we go through this, I'll describe you know, what we found, and I'd love to get your reaction on. What you're hearing in the market when you talk to clients and some, maybe some examples if they come up um, where, where this may ring true or it could be surprising, perhaps, from what we're hearing. What are the factors that are warding consumers off, right? What are the reasons why they might abandon carts uh, when buying internationally? And so we looked at a variety of reasons. I'm going to pluck out a few here as examples of cart abandonment reasons uh, that consumers listed. Well, you know, so A couple of these are going to be no-brainers. Product price was too high right? Or um, my, pay- my preferred payment option wasn't provided. Um, the site didn't clearly explain that they shipped internationally to my country. The checkout process was different. I didn't recognize the delivery carrier. I didn't want to risk paying for duties when I pick up the package if, I, if I'm buying this uh, delivery duty unpaid instead of prepaid. Um, didn't want to bother with returning the item if it didn't work out right? Or the, the, the currency wasn't localized. Can you talk a little bit about kind of what your reaction is and, and what do you uh, t- tell retailers that you're talking to about uh, solving for some of these issues?
2: That, yeah, I love this data actually, because it, it speaks to a lot of what us, or my, my team, myself as, you know, thinking from a consulting mindset, what of some of the advice that we give to retailers that we talk to? There's a lot of simple things that you can do on your website that don't cost a lot of money in order to give, again, consumers a good experience. I was surprised by how many people, um, said, I think it was like up to 50% in a couple countries said the site didn't clearly explain whether retailers shipped to their country or not. And then obviously when you start working with partners and there's other components that you can address, but um, again, the simple things like explaining how your checkout process works and um, explaining that you ship to that given country, there's a lot that you can do to improve. 50% of people said that was one of the reasons. Just think about if you could you know, remove that as a, as a roadblock.
1: The top reason for cart abandonment was shipping costs were too high, and that's if that's the top reason, a lot of merchants, uh, uh, as, as I'm sure you'll tell us here in a second, subsidize the cost of shipping for international, right? Uh, but one another reason that that carts get abandoned is because the delivery time was too long. And that, that's kind of two sides of the same coin. So I want to talk about the speed of shipping and what is a reasonable shipping speed to subsidize if you so chose to run that promotion, free shipping promotion at a certain purchase point uh, for, for international consumers. So we asked this question kind of three different ways. We asked, what do you consider, how many days do you consider to be fast shipping? Uh, up to how many days? What is acceptable shipping and what is slow shipping? And when you look at the chart, there's you know, consumers have a bunch of different opinions. We look at where does it cross that 50% threshold among consumers, where does the majority of consumer respondents where did they say fast shipping ends? And what we're seeing is that for most countries, it's pretty, it's it's remarkably consistent from country to country. Um, but it is slower than internet than than domestic um, domestic shipping speeds expectations for international fast. It runs about uh, up to about four days is fast. Anything four days or less is is fast. For acceptable, it ranges from about four days to eight or nine days, depending on the country. And slow really kicks in uh, at about eight or nine days or more than eight or nine days, except for some countries like uh, Germany, Australia, and China expect longer transit times. Part of that for China might be customs. Australia There's a few reasons for that. Can you talk to us a little bit, Stacey, about what is your reaction to this data? What do you uh, see that that merchants may not completely understand about the expectations of shipping speed?
2: Consumers in different countries obviously have a slightly different expectation when they know something is coming from across their borders. But like you said, they still want, if, if they consider something fast, it's still in four days or less. So there's a lot of areas, though, that you can kind of, I don't know if it's considered arbitrage, but kind of arbitrage that, okay, do I want to do it deliver fast or do I want to deliver within an, ex- an acceptable time frame? And I think that balance is where you can address those two pieces of um, the, the card abandonment reasons before, which was shipping costs were too high and it takes too long. So in a country like Canada, they're saying, you know, fast is four days or less. And then acceptable is up to seven or eight days. That's like a huge opportunity because you can use standard carriers from the US into Canada and get to what, like 60% of people live in metro areas. You can get to them in three days pretty easily, maybe four. So in those cases, there's a lot of opportunity for using a standard type of carrier that maybe gets to the whole country in eight days because you're including you know the upper territories, but gets to the majority of your consumers in three or four days. And they could either consider that fast or absolutely acceptable. So I think it, this is a great opportunity where you can kind of think about data, um, purchase behavior in different countries and identify where you'd wanna invest in some either shipping optimization, so you know, highlighting express carriers when their acceptable shipping is, is a little bit of a lower number that they're expecting, but then also utilizing standard carriers in a lot of, in a lot of countries where they're happy to get something up to eight days. And they're, especially if you can give it to them for free or for a low cost, that'll remove a lot of the barriers to, to them for purchasing.
1: That's great. That's great. Great input. So let's talk a little bit, uh, zeroed in on the European market, uh, and, and the impact of Brexit, which is pretty recent, um, fairly recent. And we asked this question in the survey around what impact has Brexit had on your buying um, from, from UK brands? Or we asked UK consumers what was the impact on buying from uh, European brands, continental European brands. And across the board, as, as you might expect, the responses were leaning heavily towards Either consumers stopped purchasing between 16 and 20 percent, 15 and 20 percent of consumers in France, Germany, uh, UK stopped purchasing from one another's um, zones or trade zones uh, as a result of Brexit. Uh, A full quarter of consumers are purchasing less across borders Um, and less than half say there's been no impact. Um, So there's obviously been a change, as you might expect, with increasing trade barriers between continental Europe with Eurozone and the UK. What was surprising is we followed this up with a question on how much has this affected your propensity or likelihood to buy from U.S. brands? And what we found was that there's a a large segment of consumers in France, Germany, and and the UK who said that they are, about a third said that they are purchasing less from U.S. brands post Brexit. Now, there's been some some trade regulation changes, policy changes with respect to the EU. Stacey, can you talk a little bit about what's changed and why it's harder for U.S. brands to sell into the EU
2: now? Yeah, I have to I have to assume and hope that the reason that you know U.S. brands aren't selling as much is more this you know the EU change than the UK Brexit change, since it that literally isn't doesn't impact the U.S. at all, but um, the So July 1, the EU made some regulation changes that we feel like actually are going to happen even more and more around the globe. Like Australia did something like this um, two years ago, I want to say, as well as I think New Zealand. Um, and essentially what they did is require that anyone selling cross-border into Europe charge duties. If you're a retailer and you want to ship to Europe, you now have to register to sell into Europe, if you sell anything that's under $150, if you want to give consumers a duty and tax paid experience. The biggest challenge for retailers right now is that they don't even know that in order to ship to Europe, now they need to register um, with this IOSS. And so, what we're doing a lot of right now with retailers is just educating them on these changes because it can put them at a lot of risk as a business if you're now, it's basically like you're not paying the European taxes. We're consulting a lot with with companies regarding with retailers on just the fact that they need to do this registration, um, how we as partners can either help them do that, how we can help them offer standard shipping into the different countries, express shipping as well into different countries in Europe. To, to try and minimize that change. But it, it is a change because there's, you know, now a financial implication for the shoppers there that they have to pay duties where they didn't necessarily before. And then, then there's the heavy burden now on retailers where they're potentially having to, to hire a third party to do this registration and this tax, um, or VAT, I should say, collection on their behalf that they didn't have to do that before either.
1: And like you said, I mean, there's the, every trend line indicates that, that- these types of changes in data collection and using using duties or, or VAT as a point of leverage, it's only going to increase.
2: Yeah. 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 That's one one good thing about having someone else be your merchant of record is like for Pitney Bowes, if we've done that for our, the retailers for whom we are, we are their merchant of records, so they don't have to do, they were barely impacted from a from a corporate business standpoint obviously their consumer shoppers were impacted but um, they don't have to do any sort of registration because we've done that on their behalf so that is one benefit to being to not being your own merchant of record is that a lot of times as the the international regulations change around VAT and tax collection and I think I said duty before but it's VAT the VAT collection has changed Um, so as that as those regulations change globally working with a partner does help you kind of b- maintain your awareness of what's changing. And then hopefully, you know, assuages you from having to actually do registrations and do different things on, on your own behalf.
1: And and a lot of, I think the challenge ahead is how do you navigate that landscape given the the opportunity that, that sits behind, behind that complexity?
2: Yeah. I, I think the other chicken and egg though to it is, as cross-border e-commerce becomes more popular, people become more familiar with it. Um, there's more and more. The world is global. Social media means that you know people in different countries learn about U.S. brands. So there's just more and more opportunity for people all over the world to start shopping from different brands. And so it's how do you how do you figure out how you want to serve them? Um, definitely, to, you know, take the take the step to start shipping there and figure out. Be willing to test and learn. Um, and work with partners when you can if you don't have the expertise in house don't be afraid to work with someone they they typically have your best interest in mind because everyone wants to succeed in the same way so they all everyone wants to be profitable by with cross border shopping and cross border e-commerce so it's kind of like a you might as well take advantage of of the interest that's there
1: absolutely aligned aligned incentives this has been great Stacey. i think uh there's been a tremendous amount of information that we've we've kind of gone through and reviewed and, and some great insight that you've, you've given from your experience, 10 years.
2: <laughs> it's weird.
1: <laughs> All right. Welcome back. The, we have a, a, our usual panel up now with Sam Coiro and John Caplow from Pitney Bowes. And we're going to go through a couple of new segments one, the first segment that we're going to talk through is some recent articles that we've read in and about e-commerce logistics. We're going to debate and discuss what we see is kind of what's around the corner in this industry, in our market, and, and among our clients and others we work with in this in this space. Let's start with some of the stuff we we're reading, our reading list right now. i want to kick off with Sam. Sam, you've got some interesting stories. This first one you've got is uh, it's about fish, British fish. Is that right?
0: Uh, not quite. It, it's, well, salmon, yes, and, and Irish salmon to be specific, and Irish smoked salmon if you really want to get particular. So there's a company out in, in Ireland. Uh, they're actually called Hederman. And I, I've come to learn that they're one of the most respected, oldest, kind of premier smoked salmon houses uh, in Ireland. <clears throat> I mean, to the effect that they're still using the, you know, the cedar barns uh, with with the natural smoke, et cetera. So it's not, it's not like a manufactured process. It's really a curated hand, you know, kind of hand process. So the interesting thing here is really, really big market in the UK. And they've got a lot of customers that they've spent a lot of time building relationships with, um, you know, where a lot of these people were typically going to a restaurant somewhere in the UK they would uh, try the fish or the salmon, sorry, and then eventually they were subsequently they would order from this house over in Ireland. So, what they're faced now with, though, is 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 an impending doom. I'm going to call it as it pertains to Brexit, but there's also some supply chain or some issues related to supply chain on the back end of that. So the issue right now is they're, they're stating that it actually costs less to ship smoked salmon from Ireland to the US versus UK. So pre-Brexit, and obviously the UK was a very big market for them, but now post-Brexit, due to all the paperwork and the limitations and the rules and regulations, duties, taxes, et cetera, they're they're getting pillaged in terms of trying to ship into that market. So I'm just going to read some interesting stats that I pulled out. So number one is They are saying that it's actually costing them an additional 23 dollars or 23 euros or 19 pounds per shipment to go from Ireland to the UK. Now, what's not clear here is who's absorbing that cost. I'm gonna expect or anticipate that it's the end consumer, but 23 euros or 19 pounds more expensive versus traditional delivery to get it into the UK. So because of this, they're obviously getting a lot of customer churn. Customers are just not able to buy. And what they're expecting is a 20% decrease in sales over Christmas, simply because of the fact that they're going to have a tough time going into the UK. And on top of that, not only are they losing sales, but when they do sell into the UK, they're quoting pages and pages and pages of paperwork to, to fill out in order to get the product from A to B. So this whole kind of kerfuffle that's occurred over in Europe is causing a really big issue for them uh, in terms of getting their product from A to B. Now, I'm going to tie this to supply chain and kind of the shortages we're seeing there in just a second. And here it is. The whole the the term supply chain issues is just a term that I'm hearing every single day now, regardless of whether I'm at a coffee shop or I'm at a Walmart or whatever the case may be. So here's what's really interesting. So both of these articles talk about very similar things. They talk about uh, the backlog uh, at the ports, specifically in, in Western United States. They talk about the lack of truckers, the lack or the shortage of labor. Lack of space, lack of cross-country transportation uh, availability, and effectively spiking spike in prices. So let me just unpack those a bit. The ports. At the time of the writing, one of the articles references that in the Port of Los Angeles, um, volume is up 30% versus prior year. Okay, that, 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 we get it. A lot of stuff coming in from overseas. But there's a mismatch because the capacity for trucking is only up 8%. So you've got 30% more product coming in, but only 8% more uh, equipment to move it. So right off the bat, there's a mismatch. And that's going to certainly put you in a bad position when trying to move product from the West into the East.
1: So this gloom and doom, Sam, that you're giving us, I want to transition to, John, you've got a couple of notes, a couple of articles that uh, are more about what are what are retailers or shippers doing to adapt and what is follow on issues are they seeing right is that what you're, what you're yeah
3: yeah sure that's that's a good that's a good tee up vj so one of the things that retailers are trying to do and it it worked early on with covid was to um Try different ports besides L.A. and Long Beach, which, you know, represents by far the, you know, the the two biggest ports by twice as big as the next, which is New York and New Jersey. And I think the way the article, uh, you know, kind of reads this did this trick did work early on where retailers and brands were diverting. Um, to other ports, albeit, you know, would take longer and cost more money. But as it turns out that there's just not enough scale within those smaller ports, they are now overrun as well. In one of the articles, it talked about that there's now a line of ships outside of Savannah, Georgia, if you can imagine. So I think these lines are starting to to, uh, to, to happen at several different ports so while that early release valve of going to some other ports might have worked, albeit more expensive and slower, it seems that play is kind of used up and not not working as well now as, as everybody's backed up. Uh, the second article that I uh, looked at was, was one that was talking about inventory or lack thereof and the concern that retailers had. Uh, this was from a bunch of CFOs' perspective as they were Trying to call fourth quarter, and while most of them said, "Look, we're we're certainly going to um, be up," and you know, I think the article said that the overall retail sales were up uh, seventy basis points compared to being down a little bit in July, as you know, kind of the summer summer took hold as it would have in previous summers non COVID. There is a lot of concern about having the right inventory amounts on the shelves. A few declined to to predict what it would be. But some of the things that they've been doing and what they called out uh, were certainly trying to order sooner, um, but, you know, there's there's only so much time, revising contracts and potentially using the spot market, which is real expensive, air shipments, even more expensive, and then finally uh, moving their operations, perhaps locally. What I've read is
1: a, a kind of a trend that's happening right now in direct-to-consumer. There's an interesting thread here that uh, there's two costs that boil down to the the biggest pressure points one is supply chain which is what we've been talking about and the second is customer acquisition and customer acquisition costs are high now because there's only a couple of places where you can go get customers there's facebook there's instagram maybe a couple smaller channels but primarily facebook and instagram and it's getting more expensive because everybody's bidding on the same same ad same keywords with For now, Apple's change on privacy, it's going to make it harder to do targeted advertising on those platforms. Google says that they may follow suit in the next year or so. We'll see what happens, but that could potentially increase the cost of customer acquisition for a lot of those companies. And with everything you guys have just talked about on the supply chain side, a lack of labor, a lack of transportation, a lack of uh, uh, port operating hours. The inbound supply chain and the outbound supply chain is getting challenged as well, and it's getting more expensive. So, these two forces are kind of coming together and really putting pressure on the whole digital con- to consumer um, ecosystem or direct to consumer ecosystem. And what we're seeing is two trends, right? One is that a lot more direct to consumer companies are going wholesale and selling through retailers. So Target's doing it. Walmart's opening up a marketplace. You, you're seeing pressure to sell through other channels, marketplaces and wholesale, um, wholesale retail models. The second is there's more and more Shopify merchants now selling on Amazon and more Amazon merchants now selling direct. And so everybody's diversifying the channels because customer acquisition and supply chain costs are, are going up and it's putting pressure on where do you fund growth? Where do you fund growth? The other, the other thing that's uh, getting getting a lot more complicated uh, now is this, this idea that um, that you've you got to have one brand that represents one product. Most digitally native companies start out with a single core product they launch. And to diversify that is really tough because you've already named the brand based on your core product. And so you see a lot of consolidation happening on the back end from the supply chain point. You see a bunch of companies rolling up DTC brands, digitally native brands or Amazon sellers like Thrasio. They're rolling up these multiple brands under a portfolio so they can share supply chain costs, maybe not as much marketing dollars, but at least supply chain and headcount so that they can scale up because the costs are killing a lot of a lot of these businesses.
0: Definitely, there's been a shift to deal with the supply chain issues, the, the way that the DDCs are going to the consumer capital, you were mentioning bringing uh, raw materials in. But here's the question. The question is, is this reactive based on the fact that we've had this crunch over the last 12 to 24 months due to COVID, um, where these these brands have had to pivot their strategy to take these types of models up, basically everything we're describing, and and what's going to happen when, when everything, quote, goes back to normal? So what happens when... The port of Los Angeles gets back to running like a well-oiled machine. What happens when the equipment is available twenty-four-seven? What happens when all of the industries align and they're operating like a like a nice hum? You know, does that then put these brands in a position where they have to rethink their strategy again?
1: If you want to learn more, there's a link to subscribe to our newsletter, and uh, we look forward to hearing from you uh, and any of your suggestions. Just let us know through the contact form. And thanks for joining. Appreciate it.